From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we speak with Eli Clifton, contributing editor of Lope Blog, about the recent controversies surrounding Representative Ilhan Omar, who has been questioning the U.S.'s unconditional support for Israel, as well as the influence of APAC, the powerful lobby that is instrumental in shaping U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Later in the program, we'll hear from five female Yemeni activists who speak about the impact that the war has had on their lives and how they see their role as Yemeni women, both politically and socially. Stay with us. At a time when genuine anti-Semitism may be on the upsurge with the recurrence of overt white supremacy, the distraction of imaginary anti-Semitism in the service of Zionism has become a serious issue of late, both in the U.S. and abroad. The all-too-familiar manipulation of anti-Semitism as a weapon to blame the victim, in this case Palestine, in order to eliminate all resistance to the Zionist project, has finally begun to be questioned and challenged in the U.S. thanks to a new generation of activists and politicians. How to distinguish, then, between actual anti-Jewish prejudice and the continual attempt to silence any and all objections to Israel's colonialism and expansionism? Khalil Bandeep put that question to journalist Eli Clifton. He's a contributing editor at lowblog.com. He has written extensively about the role of money in politics and U.S. foreign policy. I'd like to begin with the recent controversies around Congresswoman Ilham Omar's uh, transgressions or supposed uh, transgressions. The, the first big taboo she has challenged, the one that is unspoken, until recently, it's been unspoken, even though a lot of people privately talk about it, and for which she was actually forced to apologize, was the notion that money actually drives at least some of uh, U.S. foreign policy in Israel and Palestine. We have major funders who know exactly what they're doing, a lot of Sheldon Adelson, for example, who know what they want, and they're not shy about uh, going for it and funding a lot of politicians. Why is this such a big taboo. The, the fact that some Jews, not all of them, <laughs> some Jews who are very pro-Israel and pro-right-wing Likud and very right-wing policies in the Middle East, why is it such a taboo that it would be acknowledged that they do have some kind of influence? Well, I mean, I think there are a few donors, such as Sheldon Adelson, who is the Republican Party's biggest donor, uh, who undoubtedly do play uh, an influential role in this. I think a lot of what we're seeing, though, is what is a growing point of tension within the Democratic Party, which is that the policies pursued by Israel, which they have a very far right-wing government right now who have certainly uh, done themselves no favors in terms of trying to to make alliances with, with Jewish Americans and especially with the more liberal members of that community. And it's created a tension within the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party has tried to maintain what is now a, a decades-old policy of being supportive of Israel, suggesting there should be no daylight between the United States and Israel, while their constituent 
Arab base is increasingly uncomfortable with Israel's behavior and with the United States and the Democratic Party's willingness to stand by and offer sort of a blank check to Israel as, as they pursue these policies. So I think that that's probably one of the reasons it was so explosive. It's not just what she said, and we can get into that in a little bit, but it's the fact that she was acknowledging that there is a deep rift within progressives and within the Democratic Party, and it's one which is is not about to go away overnight. The only way that the people who have a great deal of discomfort with that rift have so far been able to try to resolve it is to try to essentially just make it disappear by saying that even the discussion of this topic, questioning what the U.S.-Israel relationship should be, questioning whether there should be unconditional support for Israel's behavior, and questioning whether the U.S.-Israel relationship has actually been good for the United States, suggesting that having that conversation is fundamentally anti-Semitic and and shouldn't occur. Yes. So she actually said something about the Benjamins, quote-unquote, the money having a disproportionate influence on policy in Israel-Palestine, which is a big no-no, not only on the right side of the dial in this country, but often also on the left side of the dial, people who are vocally opposed to Israeli depredations, like Noam Chomsky, for example, and many on the left, but who are extremely uncomfortable whenever it comes to the idea that perhaps some, not all Jews, obviously, perhaps some Jews do have an influence, and it's through money and through other means, but perhaps, yes, the U.S. policy in Israel is not all due to uh, interest in oil. It's not all due to evangelicals. That's very recent, comparatively recent, maybe past two decades. But yes, it has to do with some very influential perhaps a very tiny minority, but very influential people who have a lot of money and are able to distort the democratic game out there by by giving too much money to people who will serve their aims. That was my reading of the bigger shock, not just the fact that she manifests a a resistance to serving always Israel's interests unconditionally, but also to the actual taboo that perhaps because Anti-Semites over the centuries have always complained very often unjustifiably that Jews have too much influence, that Jews call all the shots, that Jews can call the weather. That nevertheless, yes, some people who happen to be pro-Israel in this country have a lot of influence. Absolutely. And I think that there's a couple interesting aspects of what she said. And the first thing I find intriguing is the response to that we simply can't have that discussion about of the role of money in politics and the U.S.-Israel relationship because some of those donors who might be seeking to influence that debate happen to be Jewish. And, And I'll talk in a moment about the fact that some of those donors are not Jewish. But the fact that we could say that about one significant policy debate in the United States is totally absurd because at this point, partially due to cynicism in this country, but as well as the facts and the reality, it's not a radical or controversial statement to say that money in politics influences pick your policy debate. Pharmaceutical regulation, banking deregulation, tax reform, environmental policies. No one's even going to bat an eyelash at the idea that money is somehow influencing politics. It's not unique to this political debate. It's not unique to, to this component of foreign policy. If anything, she's 
actually normalizing this component of the U.S. policy debate by saying that, yeah, money does influence this just like every other policy area you could possibly talk about. So first of all, I find that to be a very interesting thing that we nearly have this cognitive dissonance where we say, we'll talk all day about how money influences U.S. politics and and every major newspaper will report on that every single day. But when you bring it up in this one specific context, suddenly it makes people deeply uncomfortable and you're not supposed to talk about it. But I want to get to the second part, which is that I think that, yes, certainly the Republican Party's biggest donor is Sheldon Adelson, who has been in the past very close with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and he played a role with Donald Trump in in advocating for the the U.S. embassy to be moved from from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He has very hawkish ideas about about Palestinians as well as about Iran, where he's proposed uh, dropping a nuclear weapon on Iran. It's also worth noting, at least, that the Republican Party's biggest fundraiser is a guy named Norm Coleman from Minnesota. And Norm Coleman is both the Republican Party's biggest fundraiser. He's the chairman of the Republican Jewish Coalition, which is sort of the Likud-oriented group of Jewish Republicans. It's very small compared to, for instance, a number of the Democratic Jewish organizations, but the RJC, as it's called. And he is also a paid lobbyist for Saudi Arabia. Now, when members of Congress have a vote coming up, that impacts the U.S.-Israel or the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and very often those are intertwined, I think it's fair to ask how Norm Coleman's disbursement of campaign funds to various local races might influence that debate, and how Norm Coleman's motives and the money influences on him at being paid by Saudi Arabia might impact that process. So I, I think it's easy to look at Sheldon Adelson and say, well, he's the Republican Party's biggest donor, so all members, Republican members of Congress have to listen to him. And I'm sure that that is true to some degree, but it's certainly more complex than that. And I think we need to also be looking at the influence of foreign governments on the policy debates as well. But why is it that this particular issue of the money, the Benjamins influencing our policy in the Middle East why is it such a hot trigger? I think there's there's two answers. One that you already touched upon is that it brings us close to some anti-Semitic canards, but it does not bring us to one. To say that there, it is simply factual that the Republican Party's biggest donor is Sheldon Adelson. Sheldon Adelson happens to be Jewish. Sheldon Adelson has been outspoken about what how he wants to influence U.S. politics and about his views on U.S. foreign policy. That's not a trope. That's just the reality of how this individual has acted. Uh, And he certainly doesn't represent all Jewish Americans. If anything, he's the exception rather than the rule about how Jewish Americans have chosen. At the same time, there are other major donors like uh, the founder of uh, Home Depot, Mr. Marcus, who you mentioned. Bernard Marcus. Bernard Marcus, who is also very liquid-oriented. So yes, on the one hand, these people are not really supposed to represent anybody, except that at the same time, they're not an isolated incident in our political landscape, not by any length. I mean, historically, there have always been some very powerful pro-Israel funders there on both sides, not just with the Republicans, but with the Democrats. So to exaggerate in the opposite direction and say, well, you know, they don't really mean anything, they don't really have an influence, is also not very helpful in terms of finding out what the truth is. They absolutely do have an influence. It's interesting to watch how the 
so-called pro-Israel campaign funds have increasingly shifted towards supporting Republicans instead of Democrats. And I do think that the dependence on, as Israel has shifted further and further to the right and moved further and further away from where most Jewish Americans are comfortable, their influence in Washington has fallen increasingly onto a small group of right-wing Jewish billionaires who are pretty far removed from where most Jewish Americans are. And I think in that sense, it does show that that growing tension that I was alluding to before, and perhaps perhaps the cynical use as well by those individuals who are like Sheldon Adelson, Bernie Marcus, of funding a party that caters to Christian evangelicals who, when you get into their, what they believe actually, there's some deeply anti-Semitic components to their, to their beliefs, but to use that to further sort of the rightward shift in Israel, or at least maintain U.S. support for Israel's increasingly rightward trajectory. Isn't it also a way to change the subject, to focus on the tropes, so-called, going back to anti-Semitic tropes? Isn't that a, a way also to change the subject instead of just talking about what Israel's doing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think in this case that it's a cynical misuse of what is actually a very real problem right now, which is that there is growing anti-Semitism, there's also growing Islamophobia. And under Trump, we've seen a, a boost in both of those. He's catered to those tropes and those conspiracy theories. And it's interesting to see the people who attack Ilan Omar be the same ones who had no problem with these types of things when Donald Trump and his supporters were engaged in it. Yes, exactly. You also alluded in one of your articles to the fact that people like Shadel Adelson have no problem allying themselves with clearly anti-Semitic uh, figures like Orban and Bolsonaro, all sorts of, of right-wing people who are not necessarily very fond of Jews. Yeah, as we've been discussing, Israel's rightward shift has made some unlikely bedfellows. And earlier on, certainly the, the alliance between Christian evangelicals and the pro-Israel far right has existed for a couple decades at least, probably a bit more. What is maybe newer, or at least coming into the open more now, is that as Israel continues to shift further and further to the right, they're making alliances with, as you just said, people who are, are pretty openly anti-Semitic. And it seems as if the the rule is, is that they're happy to make alliances with anti-Semitic leaders, as long as those leaders are also pro-Israel. It's probably no coincidence that people that are anti-Semitic can also be Islamophobic. These things often run together. And I think that essentially the Islamophobia is permitted to create this alliance, uh, even if there's still some, some anti-Semitism that's underneath much of it. And at the same time, what is never talked about in the mainstream media in this country, or generally in the West, is the fact that people like Netanyahu, and a lot, even people on, on the mainstream of Israel, not necessarily right-wing, have for decades linked, intentionally blurred the distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Isn't that a way of holding hostage an entire community to absolutely insist that anytime you disagree with Israel, you're an anti-Semite? Absolutely, and it's become much more important to Netanyahu and his allies than, than it was before to further that, that strategy. 
because as Israel's policies increasingly lead American politicians, and I certainly think Ilan Omar was, was <laughs> excuse me, were saying things that were true, but to be fair, pretty much every U.S. Secretary of State has since for the past 10 or 15 years has at one point or another made comments about how, for instance, Israel's expansion of settlements is often correlated to attacks and increased upsurge of IEDs in Afghanistan and Iraq targeting American soldiers. So this concept that, that Israel's behavior might be coming at some cost of one form or another to the United States that is not as widely understood uh, is not a new thing. But the point is, is that as, as Israel continues to go further and further to the right, continues to get further and further away from where a lot of Americans, including Jewish Americans, are comfortable, there has to be new and, and stronger efforts made to silence that dissent and that does the discussion of that gap between where most Americans are and where Israel is politically. And, and so I, I think that the promotion of this concept that criticizing Israel or criticizing Zionism is is the same as anti-Semitism is a huge, huge, huge part of that strategy. I, I would say it's probably actually the central component of it, because if you can make that strategy work, you can shut down pretty much any dissent and any arguments that criticize Israel or, or, the, or U.S. Uh, support for Israel. That said, I think it's also an argument that, that a lot of people can see through. It's fundamentally flawed in its very nature, because there's plenty of Jewish Americans and Jews elsewhere in the world who are probably not anti Semitic, but have plenty of problems with Israel. And Israel, in being a sovereign nation, it's a little under hard to understand how criticizing, how you can't criticize this sovereign nation, but you can criticize other ones. It doesn't quite work out when you start to think through the logic of that argument. And ironically, if anything, it is furthering the spread of anti-Semitism, or at least anti-Jewish sentiment, if not the classic anti-Semitism, because people like Macron right now, president of France, have come so far as to say, look, we're going to make a law. I don't think he'll be able to, but he's been talking about making a law that equates anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, which really pushes people to choose a camp. You know, either you're pro-Palestinian and you're an anti-Semite and just get used to it, or you're not an anti-Semite and you have to agree with everything that Israel ever does. Right. And these questions really shouldn't have anything to do with one another. The thing I find most deeply offensive about it is that it fundamentally cheapens the real problem of anti-Semitism. It fundamentally, I think, disrespects victims of anti-Semitism because you're using their the fact that they've been mistreated and you're using a real problem and a very real form of discrimination that has had deadly costs and, and impact to further your kind of short-sighted political agenda. And there's something not just cynical, but something deeply offensive and problematic about that. And I think it's something that we'll be living with the consequences of for, for years to come. And dangerous as well. As we've seen, anti-Semitism, even in this country, is back on the upswing with people like Donald Trump at the helm. We've seen the massacre in, in the synagogue in, in Pittsburgh. So it's not yeah. as if it's a problem we've put behind us. And therefore, try to tie it absolutely to anti-Zionism is a dangerous game. And it, certainly the, the, the massacre in Pittsburgh is, is probably a very good example to look at how cynical this, this, this exercise has become. Because you saw members of the pro-Israel far right and you saw Israel's foreign ministry pushing these lines about how 
the synagogue massacre was somehow correlated to the upsurge of anti-Zionism. Well, it turns out that synagogue was actually a fairly you know, left-leaning one, but it was this idea that insufficient support of Israel was the cause of this anti-Semitic attack and murders. When the truth is, is that no, if there was any sort of causal thing you want to point to, it's the upsurge in hate speech, discrimination, and outright embrace of the type of anti-Semitism worldwide that we were just discussing earlier with not just Donald Trump, but Netanyahu as well, making these types of, of political discourse actually considered acceptable as long as you don't question Israel's actions. And as I was saying, in France, what we've seen, I don't know if you're following the scene there in Europe, France happens to have the largest, both the largest Jewish community in Europe and the largest North African Muslim community. And so what's happened is that the two communities are put at loggers' heads because of this anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism juggernaut, because you're forcing a lot by having, this is a way for France and not just France, but France certainly to align itself with even the worst policies of Israel and Palestine right now, and provoking the anger of a lot of, of French Muslims, they're feeding this dynamic where this increased polarization, not being able to distinguish or refusing to distinguish between a genuine concern for human rights and anti-Semitism, uh, is really having a very pernicious and counterproductive result. Yeah, and that strategy of, I think it's slightly different, but the strategy of fanning the flames of Islamophobia has gone hand in hand with a lot of the far-right pro-Israel groups, uh, where they've actively sort of embraced the people who have engaged in this type of thing. For instance, AIPAC gave money to Frank Gaffney's organization to help combat the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, when you give money to somebody like Frank Gaffney, or when they have uh, somebody like Steve Emerson speak at their annual conference, he's an anti-Muslim activist with the uh, yes, investigative right. project on terrorism. And when you have these types of people in your camp, the message you're sending is that you're trying to promote this idea that not just Jews and Muslims are at war, but that there is a inherent clash of civilizations between the West and Muslims. And in doing so, it certainly helps to promote Israel's ongoing militarization and aggressions. And and so expansionism. Exactly. And, and, that's, and that's one hand of it. But at the same time, in France or in the United States, we actually have to live with those heightened tensions that there's no good reason to have. There is no inherent conflict there between Jews and Muslims in most of these places. And where you have seen it pop up, it, it's often because of, of these groups uh, engaging in these sorts of, of campaigns. So coming back to Congresswoman Ilham Omar, after the first controversy sort of abated or was on its way to abating, she did apologize. The second one, she said something else that challenged another taboo that's also vaguely reminiscent and a lot of people's minds taking us back to some of those anti-Semitic tropes. She said that some of the supporters of Israel have divided loyalties, which, you know, in the case of Sheldon Adelson and people like him, granted they may not be representative of the, of the larger community, uh, you have people like Sheldon Adelson actually pushing for a U.S. war on Iran and the behavior of Israel. That would indicate, certainly, uh, a divided loyalty right there. 
Tell us about how that, that's played out, that second thing that she said about divided loyalty and, and whether that's defensible or not. Well, I think that there's been a bit of a misunderstanding about what exactly her remarks are. The way that, that I certainly interpreted it, and a lot of people who have seen her remarks in their entirety have, have viewed it, is that she was referring to the expectation that especially U.S. members of Congress would be have essentially a dual loyalty of sorts, which is not, the, not a good term to use. But the idea that when you're in the U.S. House of Representatives, there is an enormous amount of pressure on you to show no daylight between the United States and Israel. I don't think that she was targeting individuals outside of Congress, but she was saying, and especially in the actions that members of Congress have taken, it's kind of reflected that effort to stifle any daylight between uh, U.S. and Israel or or to suggest that there might be divergent interests, just like the United States would have with any other country in the world. You wouldn't expect there to be a 100% parallel interest between any countries. But that type of normal treatment of the U.S.-Israel relationship is actively stifled and, and prevented from occurring. So explain to us, for those who don't see the clear implications there, why is such a, a term, divided loyalties, why is that a painful thing to hear? for uh, certain people, maybe most people in the Jewish community. Why is that a taboo to not come close to? It's the suggestion that Jews, well, anywhere in the world, can never be fully members of a society or members or good members of, of, of a community because they will always have a divided loyalty to other Jews, to Israel, and then to the place that they that they live, which brings back echoes of how Jews were portrayed in Nazi Germany as being somehow um, some sort of, of saboteurs or, or, or a dangerous presence, uh, ones that were not fully on board with, in that case, Adolf Hitler's vision for what Germany should be and led to them being targeted in the Holocaust. And that is a deeply troubling history and one that we should all be very conscious of. And I think that what, but what Ilan Omar was referencing was the way in which the U.S.-Israel relationship is fundamentally not treated as a normal relationship. It's treated as one where, where there can be, say, no daylight. And that is, I think her phrase was, allegiance to a foreign country is the way that, that she feels like members of, of Congress are pressured to behave. And I think that there is something to be, to be said about that, that, that it is an interesting question. It's one that I think has been beaten into a lot of members of Congress. Uh, Juan Vargas, another Democrat, tweeted in response, sort of proving the point that a question support for the U.S.-Israel relationship is unacceptable. Well, why should it be unacceptable? Right. Uh, again, why should the U.S. relationship to any country in the world be an unacceptable topic to question and discuss? This goes to the fact that I, I think we're moving toward closer and closer to a situation where that the discussion of that topic is normalized and people are acting in increasingly erratic and, and outrageous way, ways to try to stifle it. Uh, what about the notion that what drives anti-Semitism nowadays has more to do with the left than with the right? We hear a lot of that. People who are defenders of, mostly people on the right in this country, Republicans, uh, supporters of Trump, will argue that, look, it's really the Democrats now who are the anti-Semites. It's no longer us. They don't have a lot to work with in that argument. They, they point <laughs> to the things said by, by people like Ilan Omar, where there are 
examples of more Democrats, certainly than Republicans, raising questions about the U.S.-Israel relationship, raising questions about even Obama's support of the Iran nuclear deal was used to try to make that case that that was somehow anti-Semitic in nature. So it goes back to conflating disagreeing with with some aspects of Israeli policy with being anti-Semitic. And, and I suppose in that if you use that definition, then then yeah, I think Democrats have have over the past several years disagreed more. It hasn't always been this way, but have disagreed more with the Israeli government than with than Republicans have. But in any other reasonable way of, of discussing this or, or measuring this, uh, the Republicans have actively gone out and, and engaged in, in anti-Semitic campaigns. There have been enormous use of anti-Semitic tropes by the Republicans and even by Donald Trump. The targets of targeting of George Soros is pretty closely matching up to, to the type of conspiracy theories that were put out about European Jews before the Holocaust, suggesting that they're standing there as sort of puppet masters of some sort and undermining the economies of these countries. And so I, I find that to be, I know it's a popular argument on the right to try to push back against Ilan Omar, but I, I think if anything, it just shows sort of the desperation and the, the breakdown of political discourse, that this is where we are in 2019, is the fact that a member of Congress questioned some aspects of the U.S.-Israel relationship, said that it's possible that money and politics, just like any other topic area, might be a component influencing this debate. And the party that has uh, the party of Steve King goes and wants to say that the Democrats are more anti-Semitic and the Republicans aren't. I mean, I guess you could try that argument. I, I just don't think it holds that much water. You defend the, the Democratic Party but I think it's, it would be more fair to mention this new wave of younger, more grassroots, more diverse representatives like Ilhan Omar, like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They have been more outspoken, and, and perhaps before them, perhaps the gate opener was uh, Bernie Sanders. You mentioned those people, yes, but I think they are hopefully starting a new reality for the, the Democratic Party where... There's now a diversity of opinions, but traditionally, until very, very recently, until maybe Bernie Sanders came to the fore, and he himself is not really a, a Democrat, it was really hard to distinguish between Democrats and Republicans when it came to this unconditional support for Israel, right or wrong. You witness these attempts, as we speak, these attempts to pass anti-BDS laws. There are ways to abridge our freedom of, of expression in this country. Absolutely. I think it's always dangerous to point to the party leadership or even members of Congress as being at the forefront of where a political party is. I think that very often they are sort of behind where the party is. I think the last Democratic convention was a good example of the fact that that the actual members of the party, they had a platform fight about pro-Israel mentioned in the party platform. And I think that we're probably going to see that again at the coming Democratic National Convention. This has been boiling to the surface for, for quite a while inside the Democratic Party. Members of Congress have been some of the slowest to react to it or to even acknowledge that this shift has occurred and that Democrats, I believe, in large numbers are uncomfortable with how the U.S.-Israel relationship has been maintained over the years. So, yes, I, I think it's... It is an enormous sign of, of movement that finally we have, a members, we have members of Congress who are talking about it. But I, I wouldn't necessarily take that as the indicator of that now the party is just starting to move in that direction. I think that this is the symptom of the fact that the party in, in a very large parts has probably already been moving that way for many years. This scarlet letter 
A for anti-Semitism seems to be losing some of its bite. You know, over the decades, it's been bandied about so much against so many people, even very pro-Israel people, even Jews who have been called self-hating. The old fable of the, the little boy crying wolf comes to mind. It seems that it's been used so much that it runs the risk of obscuring real anti-Semitism when it's actually happening. Absolutely. And that's an enormous, enormous risk and a dangerous thing. It's one of the most troubling aspects of covering this topic for several years now is the fact that it has become a cheap political smear to target the people who you just disagree with on Israel or for that matter on anything. When you're using the terminology and you're using what is a very real, serious and deadly problem just for your own personal political gains. So what would be a good step, in your opinion, towards resolving this blurring of the categories? What is the solution when a lot of this debate has been completely forbidden? Well, I, I think that we're moving closer and closer to actually having this type of a debate. And I, and I think the fact that people are so desperate and saying these types of things now more than they were before is because we're coming closer and closer to the day when maybe the U.S.-Israel relationship will be a little more normal. It'll be, the United States can't make Israel not a right-wing country. The United States can't make Israel reflect more closely what the United States would like Israel to look like. Uh, it's moving in ways that the United States, most Americans, and certainly most Democrats, find troubling in some ways. And the sooner we get to the point where we just accept that and say, we can't control it, and we're going to tailor our policies accordingly. So when Israel makes decisions and does things that enrage a considerable amount of people, especially in the Middle East, that the United States will not be seen as responsible or uh, having given tacit approval to those behaviors by maintaining zero daylight between the United States and Israel. I think we are moving towards that. I think that's something that's going to be very hard to stop. And I think that when we do get to that point, it'll become far easier to have a, an honest discussion about, and I think it'll become very apparent that, that being supportive of Israel is being supportive of Israel and being an anti-Semite is being an anti-Semite. These are these anti-Semitism and being critical of Israel will, will be fundamentally different things once we've normalized that relationship so people can be openly critical of Israel. As I say, I, th I think we're moving towards that. I think you're right. I've been at this uh, for a little longer than you have. You're quite a bit younger than I am. And I, I'm seeing a generational shift. More and more we see people who are in their 30s and 40s and 20s in the Jewish community who are less and less fearful of just speaking their minds and saying, look, there are differences here. Let's talk about these things. We've seen the entire movement, the JVP here in Berkeley. I don't know how it is in the East Coast. I and mean, you have other organizations that are also more critical of Israel. JVP here has come into its own. It's now able to stand on its own two feet and say, look, we support Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. We don't think that what she's been saying is anti-Semitic, which is remarkable. Yeah, I think we are making tangible steps in that direction. And as I say, as, as Israel continues to move further and further to the right, I think it's only going to, to make that progress more rapid. Eli Clifton is a contributing editor at Loblog.com. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
Yemen is currently one of the bloodiest in the world. And until the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the hands of the Saudi regime, this war was largely ignored. Even when media covers Yemen, we mostly see images of destroyed buildings, of rubble, chaos, and images of malnourished children. The names, voices, and stories of Yemenis are hardly at the center of this conflict's coverage. And as with other wars, women are grouped with children and the elderly. They are portrayed as simply victims at the receiving end of events around them. So how do women see this war and how did it change their lives? In my quest to learn more, I spoke to five Yemeni women, all involved in women and feminist activism in various capacities. I asked them whether women are also actors in this war. On a community level, it's easier for us to work, but in, in, on higher levels, which where we need to be, we need a government that is supporting us. People, they, they live with no dignity, with less than the minimum standards of living. War have brought the best of many, many Yemeni women. The, the state doesn't work, doesn't do its job. No water, no electricity, no salaries. No good education, no good services of health. But let me backtrack and give you a little background about the ongoing war in Yemen. Two thousand eleven was the year when it all started. Like their Arab neighbors, Yemenis took to the streets demanding dignity, social justice, and an end to Ali Abdullah Saleh's 33 years rule. The protests were able to remove Saleh and initiated a two years transition phase and a national dialogue conference sponsored by the United Nations. But soon after, the hopes for change were co-opted by Yemen's political establishment. An election with a sole candidate in 2012 brought to power Abdrabbo Mansour Hadi, Saleh's former vice president. The political process that brought the new president also birthed a proposal to divide Yemen into six regions with a certain level of autonomy, preempting renewed calls for secession by South Yemenis dismayed by government's political and economic disenfranchisement. The Federalist plan also aimed at averting claims to power by the Ansarullah movement known as the Houthis. The Houthi movement is a rebel group of the Zaydi sect, hailing from the Sada region north of the capital, Sana'a. Let's just say the national dialogue did not go as planned. The new government failed to implement the outcomes of the dialogue and to hold Saleh accountable. Saleh later allied with the Houthis, who refused the Federalist plan to divide Yemen. They seized control over parts of the country, slowly making their way to the capital, Sana'a. They dissolved the parliament, ousted President Hadi, and took over the capital in 2014. But see, the tensions between the central government and the Houthis is not new. Neither is the Gulf state's involvement in Yemen, especially that of Saudi Arabia. This time, Saudi Arabia launched a wide-scale military offensive in March of 2015. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm Adel al the ambassador of Saudi Arabia to the United States. Um, I wanted to uh, meet with you to inform you that uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia launched military operations in Yemen. Uh, the objective is uh, limited to defending 
and protecting the legitimate government of Yemen and preventing its collapse uh, to, to the Houthis. But the offensive ended up being not so limited. What may have appeared as an internal conflict slowly turned into a regional war, with Arab and Muslim countries joining the coalition led by Saudi Arabia and an unofficial support by Iran to the Houthis. The Houthis currently control the capital Sana'a and much of the north of the country. The Saudi Emirati coalition controls much of the south, and a tight blockade by the coalition has led to conditions of famine and to the spread of diseases like cholera and diphtheria. The conflict in Yemen has many layers, including a southern secessionist movement, a 16-year-old U.S. drone war against al-Qaeda, which remains active in the country, and according to media reports, al-Qaeda militants are fighting alongside coalition forces against the Houthis in parts of the country. And last but not least, the United Arab Emirates, a leading force in the coalition, running what appears to be its own independent agenda in Yemen, especially in the south. Most recent accounts estimate that 60,000 lives may have been taken by the war. This number only includes deaths directly caused by violence. Organizations like Save the Children estimate additional tens of thousands may have died from other conflict-related causes. Currently, 18 million people are food insecure and 22 million are in need of assistance. For context, Yemen's population is estimated at 28 million people. So millions are literally on the brink of starvation. So how are these women coping with this war? It's, now, it's not any more Yemeni war. This is Women and Gender Studies professor Antalaq Al-Mutawakkil. She teaches at Sana'a University. She describes the war to me as absurd. Like other women I spoke to, she believes the war is out of Yemeni's control now. It is not internal conflict right now anymore. We cannot say it is among internal uh, parties who really like stop it. I mean, but now it is a regional, it is international war that using. Uh, I mean, Yemen as the land for this uh, battle for the uh, people from both uh, conflict uh, Yemenis, I mean, conflict parties, they're, they're really tired and they're ready to stop it. So what do you think is the but obstacle? What's the problem? Allowed. They're what? not allowed. It, it's, no, it's not any more Yemeni war. Antalaq lost her father at the beginning of this conflict. He was a politician. Muhammad Abdul Malik Al-Mutawakkil was his name. She says he was working to bring Yemen's opposing parties together. Her nephew, who was studying in Malaysia, died after medical procedure, and his family was unable to be with him during his sickness due to the closure of Sana'a's airport. The family tried everything to bring his body back into Yemen and finally was able to smuggle him in, in a commercial truck that was carrying supplies. But that's not the only tragedy her family had to endure. I uh, I have now a brother-in-law who's detained in Maref. He he was he is a professor at Sanaya University in economy, and he was going to um, he coming he's coming back from Morocco, an economy conference through Maref because uh, Sanaya's uh, airport is closed. So he was first disappeared until now. We know nothing about him. 
It is mainly actually because of his last name. It's just uh, from the same race as Abdel Malik al Houthi. That that's the main. He's not a politician. He's a economist. Abdullah is referring to the local authorities in the city of Ma'rib, considered loyal to the government of President Hadi and supported by Saudi Arabia. The exact number of those abducted by parties of the conflict remains unknown. But in the recent peace talks in Sweden, the names of 15,000 prisoners were listed as part of a swap deal. Amal Abdurrahman has been actively searching for her cousin for the past two years. She did not tell me his name, but she believes he was abducted by the Houthis. My cousin was taken from his home. Militants from the Houthi and former President Saleh forces came in while he was having lunch with his family. They asked him to come with them. He asked if he could finish his lunch, but they did not allow it. We haven't heard from him since. She breaks into tears as she tells me about her aunt, the cousin's mother. She suffered a stroke and memory loss after his disappearance. Amal is from the capital, Sana'a, and she tells me since the war, they have faced economic hardships, bombing by the Saudi-led coalition, and intimidation and censorship by the Houthis currently ruling the capital. This is a problem facing many journalists and human rights defenders. Amal recounts being harassed by the Houthis for speaking to a media outlet about the case of a family friend who was also kidnapped. The man was on a hunger strike to protest torture in prison. Just because I spoke to the media and expressed my solidarity with this man, I was threatened. Militants came to my house and threatened to arrest me under the pretext that I was causing civil unrest. They threatened they would take my 10-year-old son if I do not stop or pay ransom. Amal is a mother of five. Her family worries about her but supports the work she does. Before the war, she was a housewife. Now, she's one of the leaders of the Association of Mothers of the Abductees, a woman-led organization that Amal and others started after realizing their individual efforts weren't working and that they needed to organize themselves to advocate for their family members abducted by parties of the conflict. Those abductees are often held without charges or any legal processes. That's why Emil's organization calls them abductees. She tells me that when she began investigating the disappearance of her cousin, she hardly knew where to go. She didn't know where the Red Cross or the United Nations offices were. She started meeting other women who have disappeared family members outside of detention centers. I used to run into other women outside of prison a few times a week. Most of us were housewives and had little experience in public life and in this type of advocacy. We used to share with each other information, like who to talk to that may have leverage over the current administration in Sana'a where to go, where people are detained, and for how long, to learn about our disappeared family members. We realized that we shared a lot of the same pain and became close to each other. 
We just selflessly supported each other, and we became a family. Today, Amal took it upon herself to learn human rights laws and international conventions for her work. Her organization is the main local grassroots group to advocate for Yemeni war prisoners. In their latest report issued, they document the methods of torture of over 900 detainees, including 71 cases of people who died under torture. Women stepping up and taking on more responsibilities was a theme I heard with every one of the women I spoke with. Nisma Wansour is a student from Aden, south of Yemen. She's involved with the Women Peace Track Initiative, an organization that organizes local actions to educate and push for women's rights. They also advocate for their participation in a peaceful resolution of the conflict. Nisma was herself an IDP, or an internally displaced person, Earlier in the conflict, she tells me that Yemeni women are playing a central role in the humanitarian relief on the ground. Every woman that feels that she can help, they go out to help, they, they form a small initiative. For example, now it's Eid in, in, now it's Eid in the Muslim world and many, like it started like they, were, they are collecting donations, they are buying new clothes for the IDB kids. Um, this is this is one of the very many things women are doing now. Um, uh, like I, I, I cannot like explain how proud I am of them, of their work, and how proud I am of seeing that women are not just sitting at home and saying that let the men do the job. No, we're doing we're doing it. We're not just the victims. We're all we're also there helping and and trying to make like make the situation livable as possible. With the inflation and absence of many men, women who may have never worked outside of their homes before had to go out and work to provide for their families. Like you would see so many businesses now have opened. They are women, uh, women businesses which was very rare. Um, Many women have enrolled in the workforces. Uh, Sadly, many of them are like very underqualified because they were depending on men on providing. But you could see it that many are now uh, looking for or jobs, like improving their skills, enrolling in, in like studying. Amal from the Abductees Mothers Association also talked to me about women being forced to work outside of their homes. Not an easy task with the high unemployment rate and the disruptions in salaries for the public sector employees. She says one of her friends found herself forced to collect plastic bottles and selling them, making 100 rials per bag. That's about 50 U.S. cents. Today, some parts of Yemen, like the South, are considered more peaceful than others. But the entire country is suffering the consequences of this relentless war. Filling the humanitarian and social void remains easier for women than playing a political role in this bloody conflict. There are many women who are saying that it's not the time now to be politically involved because if I I was involved now I would like I would have to be with one of the conflict parties and some many see that both parts of the conflict are guilty so they they don't want their names to be connected to either one of the conflict parts not either either the government nor the Houthis 
So everyone is like stepping back because it's too, it's too dangerous. It's too not, not stable, not safe. In the aftermath of the 2011 revolution, women constituted one-third of the participants in the National Dialogue Conference that was sponsored by the United Nations. That included independent women and those affiliated with political parties. Women were able to secure a 30% quota on all governmental levels in the proposed draft of the new constitution, which they participated in writing. They contributed with their capacities, with their experience, with their aspirations. This is Wamid Shakir, a woman and gender expert based in the capital, Sana'a. But not an ultimate achievement. It's a start to continue a woman's participation in building the new state, the new Yemen. Unfortunately, the, the National Dialogue Conference, which women participate effectively, and let's say meaningfully in that conference, to formulate the outcomes of the National Dialogue Confer- Conference regarding many national issues, the state structure, the independent entities of the state, the human rights. Wamid says when it comes to women's rights, that draft constitution was the most progressive they've seen. But as the national dialogue failed and the war broke out, the quota was not followed through. Organizations like the Yemeni Women Pact for Peace and Security, which Wamid is a member of, is one of the local organizations working to safeguard the 30% quota. And although women were present in some of the negotiation rounds between the parties of the conflict, their participation was sometimes a token representation. I asked Wamid about that. She said the impact of women's participation goes beyond. It has an impact on the, the society, the community, the individuals. Uh, and making their uh, attitude towards, me, uh, towards women positive. And uh, to believe uh, that women's participation is a right. Wamid also points to the role of women members of political parties. She says they have been also at times instrumental in communicating with activists on the ground and facilitating negotiations for the release and swap of political prisoners. I asked her if she thinks women's active social and political involvement can be viewed as a challenge to societal taboos. She told me women stepping up their role should be viewed as a natural response and not some sort of a breakthrough in women's status. Women are not generally participating in combat, but many reports document indirect involvement of Yemeni women in the conflict, from recruiting to caring for the wounded and feeding fighters. Beyond that, grassroots women groups have worked tirelessly to advocate for a peaceful resolution of the conflict. For months, they have articulated exactly the steps they viewed necessary for that to be achieved. Such proposals were shared with the United Nations envoys on multiple occasions. And as we've heard from the women I interviewed, they are also involved in the humanitarian efforts. They are protesting, negotiating the release of prisoners, and documenting human rights violations. All of that in addition to their role in maintaining the social cohesion of the Yemeni society. I asked women I spoke to what they wanted listeners to know. 
Here's Arwal Maflahi, an engineer and an organizer with the Women's Coordination Committees at Adan's refinery company. In light of the ongoing conflict and the government abandoning its responsibilities, international organizations can do more. We need a genuine and effective role. Help is desperately needed, not just in the humanitarian sector, but in long-term sustainable development, in education, human rights, and many other sectors, to help alleviate the society. The response of international aid groups to the tragedy in Yemen remains inadequate. It is further complicated by a blockade imposed by the Saudi-led coalition and disruptions by Houthi forces. But United Nations agencies and other humanitarian organizations have maintained a special attention to women's peace-building efforts. Here's what Arwa had to say about that. We cannot expect women to carry all the burden. At the end of the day, women are part of society and cannot change it alone. What goes on affects women as it affects men. And women's empowerment cannot happen in isolation from the rest of society. What is needed is a comprehensive process. Women constitute 76% of the 3 million internally displaced people in the country. International organizations document a 63% increase in violence against women since the beginning of the conflict and an increase in child marriages due to families' desperate economic conditions. Also, civil society organizations in Yemen point to the increase in households led by female IDPs below the age of 18. The recently signed peace agreement in Sweden is a spark of hope, but it is still hard to know how things will change on the ground. It's hard to predict whether women's hopes will see the light. But what's for sure is that women are striving for a better life on all levels. So far, they've continued to bear the brunt of this war. From Berkeley, California, I am Mirena Wilsi. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.